The Science of on The Money Show. The Science of the CEO. And you wouldn't think it's a science, would you? You climb the corporate ladder, you backstab on your way up, you uh, pull down your colleagues, you sit in an environment where uh, you climb to the top of the corporate ladder, you've trodden on the bodies and you've got rid of all the competitors within the organization. You're now the kingpin. You are the chief executive. You've risen to the top. You've achieved everything that there is to achieve. You're getting the big bucks. You've got the corner office. You've got a bevy of people who will do what you say when uh, when you say it. All of that sort of stuff comes with being a chief executive. Lines open now if you want to disagree. 011-883-0702-021-446-0567. The Science Of brought to you by Telcom Business. Convergence, one solution, one service provider. Somebody who knows the world of being a chief executive better than most is a guy called Andrew Woodburn, executive search expert. He's the managing director at Woodburn Man. Have I summed up? What it's like to be a chief executive, because that's my Wall Streety image of what it's like to be the big bag, big bad boss. Bruce, uh, my perspective is you've probably given it a good dose of Hollywood there. Of course, it's a lot less sexy than that. It's long hours, <laughs> it's long commitment, it's a lifetime of application, and in often it's a thankless task in many cases. They then, have. Then to take- why do so many people stab each other in the back and step over the corpses of their former friends in order to get to the top of that corporate ladder if it's such a lousy job? Well, we all pick something to do in life, first of all. So you want to have some ambition to get to where you want to go. And most good chief executives, when you talk to them, say they're driven by the challenge. Of course, with that challenge comes a reward. But in essence, most of the ones who are driving change, driving results, making things happen, or really have an ambition to make a difference, make an impact. Uh, One of the good chief executives I was talking to recently said he loves it when he sees his fingerprints on things. He doesn't do the work himself any longer, but it's really the vision and how that gets carried out that gives him the reason for being. Let, let's work toward that point because I think that's a nice, uh, that's a nice uh, sort of goal to aim for as to how the chief executive who, who is the influencer, the key influencer within the business to drive the goals, to drive the strategy, to drive all of that. What does it take if you are 21, 22, 32, 33, 40 even, if you want to become a chief executive of a large company, um, say listed on the JEC, what does it take? Who do you have to be? Do you have to be the the head boy, the head girl material um, when you were 17 years old, a a perpetual overachiever? Not necessarily, Bruce. You you do need to know how to deliver, and whether that's in your school exam, your varsity project, or as what we call an individual contributor in a business where really you only have to look after yourself and make things happen, that's where it all starts. At the end of the day, you need to take yourself a little bit seriously. You need to apply yourself and make sure that your reputation is in good standing almost the entire way through your career. But I tell a little story. So it depends on which life stage you happen to be in. Okay. And I say in your 20s, companies hire you on 90% potential and 10% delivery. <laughs> if you make an error, it's unlikely to bring the business down. And they would like you to learn and contribute in that way. In your 30s, the model changes. And it's now 50% delivery and 50% potential. But things get interesting when you turn around about 40 plus minus. And that's when the model switches to 100% delivery and less potential. Because but if you haven't reached your potential by the time you're 40, you're unlikely, un- to, exactly. you're unlikely to be on that career yeah. path. So the point is you, you're laying the groundwork for your future executive leadership in your 20s. You, might, you can't think that you go out and play hard and jaw like you did when you were at university, when you're in the workplace and one day miraculously rise to the job of chief executive. Well, a lot of chief executives are very well-rounded people, except for <laughs> one small problem. 
in most cases, the brilliant chief executives, if you look at Apple and if you look at the big banks and if you look at the entrepreneurs, live their institutions. So, in fact, this thing called work-life balance, although they're well-rounded people, they don't have much work-life balance because their work is their life. If you have this ambition of being having the work-life balance, do you have to put aside the dream of becoming the chief executive? Not necessarily, but it is hard work. I mean, I think if you look at chief executives today, they have less tenure than they've ever had before. They're in difficult markets. So navigating the stormy seas is hell of a difficult, and their health suffers, their marriages suffer, they are under huge stress. And often they get to a point in time where we do see group chief executives saying to their boards, I think I'm done. I've served my purpose in this institution for this period of time. I've hit my marks, and it's now time for me to look at something different. So if you look at Hubert Brody from Imperial Group, he said he would like to spend more time with his family. He said he'd like to take stock of his life. Usually that means somebody's been fired, although in the case of Hubert That's Brody... That's why I bring him up. Uh, in the case of... <laughs> he, he's safe because in the case of Hubert Brody, he's taken a, an amalgamation of the most incredible businesses brought together by the legendary Bill Lynch, who very sadly died of cancer, possibly brought on by the stress of building this great big giant of a business, Imperial. Um, and as the accountant, Hubert has come in and has rationalized has structured and has created a sustainable base for a business for decades to come. And his results have been exceptional through very stormy waters. Mm. So Hubert Brody decides he wants to spend more time with his family. He's 50-ish, I think. I mean, he's a youngster in in executive terms. He can afford to take time out after giving quite quite a lot of himself over that period. You you talk about the the health of chief executive suffering. Um, Ralph Butcher, um, the chief executive of SAPI, announcing last week that he was going to be stepping down because he's unwell. We've seen Alan Not Craig, two heart attacks while at Vodacom, joined Cell C 18 months, two years into that. He has what's described as a minor stroke, we haven't had an update from the company in a while as to whether or not he's back at the office yet. Um, but he, there's, there's Alan Not Craig. Um, Graham Mackay. Um, Graham Mackay, um, the legendary chief executive and then chairman of SAB Miller, who died of a brain tumor. Whether it's work related or not, we don't know. But these are guys who've not had the work life balance um, that uh, many would aspire to, who've sacrificed a lot and they've paid for it with their health. Correct. And it's very sad because they have huge amounts to offer. And especially in this country, because we have a shortage of highly skilled, broad experience-based executives at this level. One, we need to hang on to them for as long as possible. And in many ways, we'd like them to contribute to the economy in ongoing um, institutions such as on boards or as entrepreneurs themselves. If you look at Lamberti leaving MassMart and setting up Transaction Capital and working his magic in that space. So their careers aren't over just because they're leaving office. Often they will convert themselves to other endeavors, and great men have an ability to do that very regularly. And women. Correct. But it's a predominantly male-dominated trade, the trade of chief executive. Um, Why? Well, basically, I think it's a time-orientated process. We are entering into new ages all the time where both transformation from a racial perspective and a gender perspective are starting to come through. But if you look at traditional group chief executives, they're sitting in their 50s, and we've now spent 20 years in the new South Africa. And so individuals who are have the potential and aspire to take those roles are not yet there. They're probably, in some cases, still five or ten years away. There are exceptions. Johan says to be chief executive of a South African company, the candidate must be black, well-connected, and to prove staying power, must have been involved in at least two big BEE deals. Shoot it down, because I think you will. 
Yeah, I don't think that's the case. So traditionally, 10 years ago, there was a very strong demand for equity-based candidates to take the helm. And many triads, there were successes and failures. The history books are, you know, bear testament to that. But I think now in the global world of competitive business, the very best individual is the one that the board would like to choose. And nowadays, it's more around what they're going to bring and how they're going to deal with the strategy and their ability to lead their institutions towards success that's important. And of course, we'd like to see more successful black executives take the helm. But my view is that what we should be doing is opening the market to a place where the very best gets the, the opportunity. But the, the, you, you run the risk in a place like South Africa, which, is, which, which suffered a significant brain drain over the last two decades, where people just didn't see opportunity for themselves and their families. They took their families offshore. I saw some numbers last week, something like 384,000 South Africans have come back from the diaspora, back into South Africa, making a contribution once again. Uh, one hopes that whatever creed, color, or religion these people are, wherever they've come from, those skills can be brought to bear in a positive and fruitful way in the South African economy, potentially even up to the role of chief executive. Correct. The key thing, though, is that we've seen a return of those individuals post the global financial crisis, where the world was turned on its head, and the particular or original, let's say, legacy of thinking that if I just do a good job and keep my head down, things will be fine. And executives in other markets then found that, in fact, it wasn't true that, that that approach would suffice, and they did choose to come back to South Africa. Now it's about competition. It's about making sure that the best get the opportunity. And so those returning individuals bringing global skills will assist us in going forward. But we've lost a million, Bruce, and yeah. only around 350,000 have returned. The big question really to the state entities that control immigration and these senior roles is the following. At the moment, it's becoming increasingly more difficult to bring the very best of the planet now, to South Africa to make it happen. Hold that thought because I want to talk more about that. CEO, chief ego officer, says Mike. Um, and then somebody else on the SMS line says, nonsense, chief executives are there to line their own pockets, pure greed, power. Yes, they stab people up in the back and step over the bodies, but eventually they too die. People don't like chief executives very much. It would seem. Well, sometimes you have to take unpopular decisions. Sometimes you have to say unpopular things to continue driving the business towards an end point. But what you don't realize and what most of the public forget is if you have a pension or you have some kind of savings or you buy some kind of unit trust and you're criticizing chief executives, those are the individuals that your pension fund managers or your investment managers are betting on. And you should rather support those individuals to lead that business to success. Provided they're doing it in, a, in an ethical way. We've Correct. seen... In particular in the construction sector, some fairly disgraceful examples of executive behavior. And I would agree with that. Business must comply with an ethical method of doing business. And we've seen competition commissions and other and the media playing really good roles in keeping everybody honest. Mm. But it's a hard job to get right. The market's out to get you. We've got currency issues. We've got other issues from a South African perspective that just add to the challenge here. We've seen John Smith, uh, John Smith um, make a very successful transition from being a captain of the, uh, of the Springbok rugby team uh, to become the chief executive of the Sharks. Somebody was, uh, it was George, who's now become too shy to talk to us, um, who's wanted to talk about Graham Smith and his leadership capabilities on the field. Is there, a, is there a, an obvious move from sport and into chief executive roles? We've seen a couple of the, the top sports people no, actually doing all right. Translate over. Yeah. Well, so I'd rather turn that to concept. What you are 
asking me is, do you have to be a brilliant rugby player to manage a rugby team? Okay. And what we know in an executive's career is at a point in time, their leadership capability eclipses their technical capability. So you don't necessarily have to be an electrical engineer to run Eskom. It helps. But actually, the size of the organization, the complexity of the challenge you're dealing with requires very, very special individuals to be able to take that role on board. And in fact, the leadership competencies and experience, intellect, personalities, charisma are really what count in the long run and not necessarily their original technical function. Having said that, we know that great chief executives do have a strong educational background. And I think if you're looking to leadership and the leadership of our country, one's often seen criticism about the fact that that informal growth period as opposed to a formal education is something that might be a chink in the armor of some of our politicians. The Science of... On The Money Show. Andrew Woodburn, Managing Director at Woodburn Man. Other than the Chief Executive of Sassel, who's a fairly recent acquisition and who's done rather well for himself in terms of remuneration, you have a contention that South Africa in the last couple of months has become a far less attractive place for foreign uh, CEOs looking for a home. That's right, Bruce. I mean, my, I would launch the hypothesis that we had a great World Cup. So South Africa really rose in the ranks of attractiveness post the global financial crisis, and we saw a return of many expats and other technical and executive specialists coming or available to come to South Africa. And that's continued for a period of time until probably last year. And, you know, I talk to individuals around the world on a daily basis, and at the current time, really the global presentation of violence such as Marikana, the weakened currency, and the political uncertainty going into elections has meant that in many cases, even if the executive himself is interested in the opportunity, we find that the family members of that executive, based on their perception of our country, would rather choose another emerging market. So Johannesburg as such, or the hub, or the economic hub of Africa, if I'm as bold to claim it, actually is now competing with Singapore, with Hong Kong, with places in Australia and other South American destinations for opportunities for executives to go and work their magic in emerging markets. But there was a time, two, three, four years ago, where Johnny Foreigner um, was here and was eager to lap up the opportunities. The global environment had gone a bit sour and we've had guys like the pick and pay chief executive come in here. A lot of the retailers are run by foreign CEOs. In particular, it's the, it's the retailers. Mm. And we've had some really great talent coming through into South Africa. Um, and that, was there a particular tipping point last year where suddenly the conversation between you and those CEOs that you were perhaps trying to headhunt into this country changed? Well, I don't think there's one one issue, but the Marikana and the labor unrest and the inability of us as a country to manage this in a structured way and in a constructive way, and, you know, we've got strikes pending now in the mining sector, really are not helping both from a foreign direct investment perspective as well as bringing that human capital to bear. Now, let me tell you some other figures. Basically, we have over 800,000 professional jobs vacant in our country right Eight. now. Eight, over 800,000 from the AdCorp survey, okay? okay? There is no ways we can fill those, those roles by our own skill set alone in South Africa. We just do not have the level of capacity to be able to t- make that up. So we need specialists from other places in the world to assist. But it's a politically difficult thing to do. If you bring 800,000 foreigners in to do those jobs, as a government, you're going to be looked at as something of a traitor to the people who voted you into power. That may be so, but I don't think leading countries around the world who follow 
showed that open door policy have suffered from that set of criticism. If you look at places like the US and Australia who say we have a shortage of medical professionals, we are the door is open. Apply and essentially, unless you've done something you shouldn't have done, you have an opportunity to enter. So I think the key about our country is I think we need to relook our immigration policy based on we've got unemployed people who would come in and the Great nations around the world do not want those individuals relying on their social services, but they also understand that in order to drive a strong economy, you need great chief executives. And if great chief executives do a good job, those companies are profitable. And if those companies are profitable, the economy grows. And if the economy grows, you get good tax revenue. And if you get great tax <laughs> revenue, the government can redistribute the correct money to assist us in building our country. So there's more than one way to look at this. It's a virtuous circle, is, is, is your view here. What makes a great chief executive? So, Bruce, it is dependent on the challenge and the strategy. There are different individuals for different roles. And in some colloquial terms, we'll talk about the farmer, we'll talk about the undertaker, we'll talk about the growth expert, the entrepreneur, and so it goes. But essentially, we like to look at an individual holistically, and we use various instruments to do that, from basic interviewing through to psychometrics, through leadership competency assessments, and a little bit of the personal magic. Uh, you know, people are still an art in themselves. There's no real robotic numbers to rank somebody. But the long and the short of it is the following. An individual should have a superior intellect. They should be personable and understand a high EQ to deal with a multitude of people in their organizations. They need to have an element of strategic vision. My father who founded our business used to say, even women have great balls. One <laughs> needs to be titanium so that it can take the shock of the world around them, and the other one needs to be crystal so they can see the future. And that applies both to men and women, because that's what a good chief executive can do. They can understand today's challenge, but they can plan for the future and execute it well. There was a criticism in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis that there'd been a failure in business leadership worldwide. Comment. Ethics, you mentioned, is that in some industries such as banking or in particular, they were being driven by agendas that didn't lead to an ethical behavior. So the watchdog institutions are fundamental. It's a part of doing business now, governance and understanding of what your shareholders want, but also the vision, the mission, and the connection to your clientele and consumers. That at the end of the day, one has to know what they are requiring from you. And we've seen great chief executives make changes to how their businesses are positioned to respond to that well. We've seen the rise and the fall and the re-rise of Apple. You've seen other great banks really look at where they were post the global financial crisis and come back with a better position. So it is around that leadership understanding how to work within the tides that they faced and to apply that in the best possible way. Possibly one of the greatest chief executives South Africa's had in the last decade. Michael Jordan, agree, disagree? Yeah, he's definitely up there in, in, the, in the top 10 or so, mm. if you want to put him there. Okay. So at 45, he quits uh, FNB and he goes off to go and do his own thing. His most annoying response to questions whenever I speak to him is, it's not about me, it's about my team. Always employ people who are cleverer than you. But it is about the individual. So he has a great quality ethic, doesn't but, he? But, but it's about the individual ability to do that that makes them a great chief executive. I'd like point? to say, Bruce, it's both. First of all, a great leader inspires confidence and has the ability to draw in with him brilliant people. Likewise, a great leader understands that he should be relying on people who are better at some things than he is. So if you put the two together, you have the essence of an awesome team. And 
obviously it is about the personality to be able to carry that through. But there's one little thing that's missing in our conversation. And it is about the ability to take the responsibility of the office and carry it out effectively. And if you have failed or if you've made a mistake, you either need to bear the consequences of that just as you bear the reward if you get it right. Are there consequences for failed chief executives? Absolutely. Really? Oh, bit no, of ego no bruising? About it. No. In, in our business, and we look for the leading chief executives around the world for the roles our clients would like them to be- perform, if, if they have made significant errors in their careers, they will not be stacked up on the portfolio of the very best who should have an opportunity to talk to a client for a challenge that would inspire them. So there are definitely consequences, just like if you say the wrong thing, so your career will be held in the balance. Before I do that, Andrew Woodburn, Managing Director at Woodburn Man, thanks very much for coming in.